And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. That is hammered. Oh, my. Man, that ball got out of here in a hurry. You know, anything travels that far out of have a damn stewardess on it, don't you think? This is a simple game. You throw the ball, you hit the ball, you catch the ball. You got it! You're listening to The Roundtable with Grant Brisby and Andy McCullough on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the second episode of The Roundtable, uh, part of the Athletic MLB Podcast Network. I am Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy McCullough, and before I introduce our two guests today, Andy, I'm going to ask you a question, and I promise I'm getting somewhere with this. What were you doing in 2000? Uh, I was in um, either 7th or 8th grade. I think 7th, I'm going to say. 7th grade. Okay, okay. I was a customer relations manager at a car dealership, and the reason I bring this up is because our two guests, we have Katie Wu, who covers the St. Louis Cardinals uh, here on The Athletic. We have Lindsay Adler, who covers the New York Yankees. Since 2000, these two teams have combined for one under 500 season, which blows me away. It's 2007. The Cardinals finished under 500. And these two teams are like, I like this pairing because, well, I like these riders. But also, like, it's just like these are the two monoliths that are always there. It's just always the Cardinals and the Yankees. You can write them in. Do you have Cardinals and Yankees thoughts, Andy? Well, I just think it's nice that because everyone hates these two teams, but for different reasons. And so I think it's great to just sort of, you know, uh, everyone hates hegemony. And so uh, these these two are I think we could actually we should get into uh, to the, uh, the sort of limitations and uh, the positives and negatives of having a sort of uh, brand of the type of baseball you like to play. I think both of these clubs are both very branded stylistically, um, in part because they've been sort of run by the, I mean, the Yankees literally have been run by the same man front office-wise for 24 years, and the Cardinals have a continuum. that. So uh, I think that is interesting. Yeah, also both cities have great pizza. Definitely not controversial. Definitely not controversial. I am actually upset I never tried St. Louis pizza when I was there. But anyways, let's no, introduce awful. our, let's do our guests. First off, we have Katie Wu. Uh, she covers the Cardinals for The Athletic. How are you doing, Katie? Grant, Andy, Lindsay, I'm, I'm alive and well. Happy to have that first series out of the way and, and have baseball back and just, uh, you know, enjoying the, the overreactions that come with the first three games of the season. Yeah, that's it, it is uh, fine. Finally, good to have baseball and actually write about something. But then it's like, do I write about like, do I make a big deal out of the first three games? Like now it's that struggle of early April. Like, what am I going to be an idiot about what's actually happened and overreact? And then we're going to say hi to Lindsay Adler. Lindsay, she covers the uh, she covers the New York Yankees for the Athletic. How you doing, Lindsay? Pretty good, pretty good. You know, getting into it. 
Do you struggle with like April writing too? Like, uh, oh, this is the biggest loss of all time. And it's like, you know, they're two and three or whatever, three and two. Yeah, I mean, there's a dilemma every year because like the games are meaningful, but like the sample sizes are not relevant. And for the Yankees, you know, they started their season out with three games against the Red Sox, four games against the Blue Jays. So those games are extremely meaningful. But, you know, you you have guys settling into the season, honestly, after shortened spring training, like everyone looks a little um, fatigued heading into the year to me. You know, I mean, the Red Sox went to Detroit and lost last night. But um, so so you have this like weird balance between like games that matter and sample sizes that don't. So I never know what to do. And I just maybe need to start banking my PTO and just taking every April off or something. <laughs> Luckily, no one listens to this. So you can maybe get away with that next year. <laughs> like, I feel like there's a sort of near the end of spring training, there's kind of like this real sprint to get to opening day. You know, it's like very exciting. And there's the bunting and everyone's fired up. And then they play that game on like a Thursday or a Friday. And by Monday, it's like, all right, I mean, I guess, like, let's just check back in on May 15th and, like, see what's happening, you know? Because, like, you know, what, what's the point? Like, well, what could, you know? Like, literally, like, we, we were at Yankees last night, Lindsay and I were, and, so, and I believe you asked Aaron Boone, right? Like, what are you looking for from your hitters right now? And he was like, just to get their feet under them. And it's like, oh, all right, yeah. Hell yeah, dude, urgency. Yeah, I mean, he was talking about how, you know, having opening weekend and having opening weekend against the Red Sox, it gave some of their newer players a chance to experience the intensity of that and whatnot. And it's like, there's a lot of adjustment that's happening, but the outcomes go into the box score all of the same. And how as writers, are we supposed to treat that responsibly? I don't know. Someone let me know if you figure it out. It's got to be extra weird because it's like the shortened spring too. The shortened spring messed me up. Like, did you guys have the same feeling? Like, it's nice to not have a month's worth of baseball games that you really don't care about. But at the same time, you you have that rhythm and you get used to like, OK, now I can really start, you know, forging you know myself for the regular season. But all of a sudden, the regular season was here. And I feel like I didn't watch enough baseball that was meaningless. You guys you guys get that same feeling? Absolutely. Um, actually, weirdly enough, this spring was my first spring training on the Cardinals beat. And I think that just amplified things and accelerated them so quickly where it felt like three weeks, maybe felt like four or five days. You know, it seemed like they had a couple of workouts. All of a sudden games were starting and then we were loading our, our suitcases up to go back to St. Louis. So for me, it was very accelerated. I still don't quite know, like Lindsay was saying, what's an appropriate reaction? How do I cover these first couple of weeks effectively just because the sample size that we saw in spring was so limited? I think just an easy rule of thumb is always overwrite injuries and underwrite rookie relievers. I think that's just, you can <laughs> never go wrong if every injury is like anytime a guy like feels a twinge in his elbow, just point out like that could lead to Tommy John surgery. You know, and anytime a rookie reliever like strikes out the side to pretend he doesn't exist, shun him, you know, like he's not worth your time. Talk to him in two months if he's still there. I wrote two separate features last year about rookie relievers having a great inning. And you'll be surprised to know that didn't really work out well for me. Who was it? One was Camilo Duvall. Okay. Um, so like he ended up making a, a big splash later, but he was sent down like the next week. And then there was a uh, Kervin Castro. Same thing. Just like he was he was right back down. And so I felt like a big, big uh, fool. So I'm going to talk to Lindsay first because I have a question about the aesthetics of the Yankees. Watching them, like when you watch the Yankees, 
It feels to me like it's it's one flavor. I think it's a good flavor. It's beefy big boy, right? It's like that is like, you know, if you have a variety of flavors, you could do worse than like have these just extremely large sluggers going up there and just hacking for the fences. That is fun in moderation. But how is it to watch night in, night out to just like, I guess they have DJ LeMayhew, but it just seems like the Yankees have that flavor. How are the aesthetics of watching the Yankees to you? It's super weird because like in 2019, especially with the juiced ball, like it was super wild because they were just this crazy offense. They were hitting home runs all the time. The pitching was so volatile. So you had these like high scoring games where it's like the Yankees are hitting home runs. The pitchers are giving up home runs. And then what I noticed last year was the way that that had really become kind of stale. Their big power approach looked kind of dated um, against a team like the Rays that I think, you know, obviously the Rays are so pitching heavy, but they have emphasized speed. And so what's actually pretty interesting to me is that for as much as it's, it is the same big beefy boy flavor of an offensive profile with, you know, Judge, Stanton, Gallo, um, and some others in there, you know, the Yankees really did kind of make some changes to try to get more offensive diversity into their lineup. You know, Anthony Rizzo, I think, is the paragon of of what the Yankees were missing. He's left-handed. He has, you know, good contact skills. He's a very good, you know, defensive first baseman. Josh Donaldson, he brings, he can slam the ball, but he also brings a different offensive profile. And so what's been interesting to me over the last few games is seeing the way that the Yankees actually really kind of did try to add some variety to the lineup. But a lot of the issues with, like, runners and scoring position and whatnot, um, those have kind of reared their head again already, which I guess the most remarkable thing to me last night was that I felt they did actually have some good at-bats in big situations, but then they were just getting eaten up by the famous Toronto Blue Jays defense. So um, really much to consider every night in the Bronx. You feel like you, you never know what you're going to see, but then you often come away seeing a lot of the same thing, I think. So when I watch the Cardinals and I'm, I'm, I don't pay like too much attention to the Cardinals. I just kind of like look at them from afar and they're always the same Cardinals to me. And like, if we're going to talk about the brand of the Yankees being beefy big boys hitting long home runs, the brand for the Cardinals to me seems like it's consistency, but also just like familiar faces and nostalgia. And it was like that already when you had, you had Molina, you had Wainwright, like they're helping the team make the postseason last year. Now you have Albert Pujols, like it takes it up a whole nother level. Is that the brand of the Cardinals is sort of just consistency and we're not just going to have Paul Goldschmidt here for a year. We're going to make sure and lock him up long term. You know, I think that's what makes the Cardinals so interesting. I mean, I go into and I sit down in the press box on opening day and I feel like, you know, is this 2006? Should I be watching this game with my dad on the couch like I would be at that time in my life? But the thing about about Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina and now Albert Pujols is yes, there is a certain dynamic of nostalgia that plays really well in St. Louis, which is such an impassioned sports town and really values those figures. But these are three players that yes, carry so much weight and symbolism in this city, but also that the front office believes can actually really help pave their way towards being a legitimate postseason threat. I mean, the Cardinals, like we mentioned earlier, a lot like the Yankees, they're always competitive. They're always somehow in it. But 
they haven't won a World Series in 12 years. And for both Cardinals fan bases and Yankees fan bases, that's a long time. Yes, I'm sure A's fans, Orioles fans are rolling their eyes, probably turning this podcast off right now. I hear you. But they bring in Albert Pujols a little bit for the nostalgia effect, but really they brought him in because they think he can be a legitimate help for this club. We saw how the Dodgers used him last year in the, you know, the matchups against lefties, the kind of pinch hit role. And he was actually very successful when you look at the numbers there. And that's exactly how the Cardinals are planning to use them. So I would say yes. Consistency with the Cardinals is, is pretty much a, a key word, however you want to use that, whether it's with their defense, their base running, or their roster. And it certainly has been interesting over these past three days to just see Adam Wainwright, who's as once again the ace of this pitching staff at 40 years old. Yadier Molina back behind the plate and Albert Pujols back at Bush Stadium. Feels like a time machine, but it also also feels like a perfect fit. Now, about the nuts and bolts of what's actually going on uh, with the Cardinals and specifically the rotation, because you have Adam Wainwright, who is 40. You have Jack Flaherty, who is, you know, if you have an injury, that's not good for any pitcher. But when you're talking shoulder injury of like unknown severity, that is extra scary. So talk about the state of the rotation. Like, what's the bridge? Because last year, you know, they went out and they got uh, John Lester and, and Jay Happ. And like everyone was sort of wondering why, but they ended up being a pretty effective bridge. So what's going to be the bridge before the deadline? Is there one? Is there depth of the minors? Like, what are they going to do to make up for Flaherty and then in the eventuality of Adam Wainwright acting his age? Well, I think, you know, this is again where consistency comes into play. Last year, we were having this exact same conversation about the starting rotation. It was, is there enough depth? Can we count on these pitchers? For once, I, I feel like Adam Wainwright is finally getting the, the credit he deserves. Of course, at 40 years old, there's always going to be a little bit of concern over his age, but he looks strong. He certainly was effective. Six shutout innings on opening day. Um, and now it comes down to who in the rotation can step up. The Cardinals have Miles Michaelis, Stephen Matz, and Dakota Hudson. Michaelis and Hudson are both coming off very substantial injuries in 2020 and 2021. Stephen Matz, of course, is a new Cardinal. Cardinals aren't quite sure how effective he's going to be. I mean, we'll give him a pass on his Cardinals debut, seven earned runs over three innings, not exactly how he wanted to start his era in a Cardinals uniform. Um, but the focus for these three guys behind Adam Wainwright, because the front office believes that Wainwright is a staple and he's good for at least six, seven innings and outing, is that these three can kind of bridge together and get consistent durability. Their fifth starter is Jordan Hicks. He's a very enticing, intriguing young right-hander. He's missed a lot of his major league career with injuries. He opted out of the COVID-19 season. He's type 1 diabetic. Um, he's been used primarily as a reliever. He can touch up to 104. I believe he threw the fastest pitch in baseball last year. So how they build up Jordan Hicks, they say that he's going to be used on a regular, as a regular starter. He's going to be on a regular starter's routine. His innings obviously certainly won't reflect that early in the season. He's eligible to start Sunday against the Brewers. Um, he's good for about 45 pitches. And they'll keep building him up, kind of like how you would see pitchers built, be built up in spring training. That, they hope, will carry them over until Jack Flaherty is back. I talked to Jack yesterday. He said that, you know, things are progressing. He can feel himself building up. But he is essentially building up from scratch. You know, there was a little bit of a platform that he was able to build up from before he felt the shoulder soreness, but he is essentially starting over. So it might be a while before this Cardinals rotation sees Flaherty back. That's obviously a huge setback when you're talking about someone with the prestige and the status and the potential that Jack has. But the Cardinals are confident that with Adam Wainwright, Miles Michaelis, who did look efficient during the spring, Dakota Hudson and Steven Matz, they'll kind of set the tone for Jordan Hicks to be able to be built out. I'm curious, this is for, for both of you, like, do you feel like for teams with such distinctive sort of stylistic brands, do you think their fan bases like those styles of baseball? 
checking in from Yankee land. I'm going to go with no. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like I said, like a few years ago, when they had kind of that like high variance, big offense, shaky pitching approach, like, sure, whatever. It got the job done. You know, people like it. I mean, Aaron Judge and John Carlos Stanton hitting a lot of home runs. That's very exciting and fun. Um, I think Yankees fans have really soured on the inconsistency of it. And like I said, I think some of the changes that they made to the roster over this offseason sort of reflect that staleness, I guess. But no, I would say that Yankees fans for about maybe a year now have not really enjoyed a lot about the brand of baseball that they've been watching, which, you know, there have been some, you know, some really great things, you know, seeing the pitching take a, a big step forward, become actually pretty dang solid last year. And I would think into this year, you know, there, there are things that I think get overlooked when we focus so much on the Yankees offensive style. But as Andy likes to say, I think Yankees fans consider this approach a tired act. Well, in reference to the Cardinal way, is I believe what, what we refer this to as, I, I think Cardinals fans are a bit of a mixed bag. I think that the fans really appreciate the brand of baseball that's played on the field every day. I mean, one thing you know about the Cardinals is that they're going to have a very solid defense. They're going to run the base as well. They're going to be very fundamentally strong. They're not going to give away outs or opportunities. I think where much of the gripe comes from is how the front office has operated over the last few years. The front office is not a cheap front office. They are more on the conservative side, meaning they aren't going to go out there and break the bank on every offseason or every trade deadline. Every now and then, are they going to land a Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arnato? Obviously. But I think Cardinals fans were uh, more or less demanding starting pitching, and they got it in Steven Matz. But was that the same kind of allure that maybe Marcus Stroman would have brought in? No. Same with uh, Corey Dickerson. Cardinals fans demanded a left-handed veteran bench bat. They got Corey Dickerson. They wanted more bench bats, maybe Kyle Schwarber. Obviously not the same weight. So I think for Cardinals fans, it has been appreciative of the product on the field and wanting more from the front office. So you saw that with the trade deadline. We mentioned Lester and Hap. Those weren't names that really anyone saw coming. And Cardinals fans were more or less like, why even do this? And it ended up being two very key moves that helped them with a 17-game historic winning streak that propelled them into the postseason. So I think for Cardinals fans, it's, yes, this is a brand of baseball we're familiar with, but once again, it's been 12 years and counting, where is our next World Series? And that's where a lot of the angst comes in. One of the reasons why I liked this pairing of Yankees and Cardinals was what I talked about in the intro, that they've just been so successful, but also because there seems to be like a criticism of the offseason on different scales about come on, like do more. Like, you know, the Yankees, they got Josh Donaldson. It's not like they did nothing. The Cardinals, they did, uh, they got Steven Matz. It's not like they did nothing. But when I read the Cardinals essay in Baseball Prospectus, the annual, it was Stephen Goldman who wrote it. It was a great essay. Uh, but he talks about like, you know, the, the clock is ticking. Like this is, you're relying on a 40-year-old ace. You have a catcher who is 39 years old. You know, it's not like Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt are uh, in their mid-20s. Like, let's go. And then they were presented with Stephen Matz. And, you know, that's a longer term. Deal. Four years for Stephen Matz. It seemed a little like, okay, here's your starting pitcher, but how loud are the howls? Is it just sort of like a, a murmur under the surface, like, oh, could have done more? Or is it kind of more over the top, like, okay, Cardinals, come on. Let, what are you going to do for me at the deadline? Let's let's pick this up. 
Well, it was a murmur when Steven Matz was signed because it was early in the offseason. It was before the lockout, and it was a, a left-handed ground ball prototype strike thrower that the Cardinals, they dearly lacked last season. It then became more of an uproar when the lockout was lifted and pitchers started reporting to camp and Jack Flaherty was hurt. And then it became a a trigger of what Cardinals fans endured last season, which was when they opened the season with two starters on the IL, and by June, their entire pitching staff was depleted. I mean, seriously, they had one starter named Adam Wainwright and essentially four fill-ins on whoever who was healthy for, for most of June. So I think in that regard, that is kind of a justified reaction, as in, okay, here we go again. You got depth, but was it enough? True, you have no idea how pitchers are going to come in. No one knew that Jack Flaherty was going to come in unhealthy, and that's a huge blow. Whenever your your prize or dynamic ace comes in and is not healthy, no matter who you are, that's a big blow to a team. But I think the uproar over Mats has less to do with who Steven Mats is and more with, oh my gosh, here we go again. We don't have enough starting pitching. Has in the front office learned from their mistakes? What can they do? Now we're relying on guys on three swingmen, all, you know, Drew Verhagen, Jake Woodford, Aaron Brooks, all guys that have had experience in the starting role, but they certainly don't pack the allure that many of the free agent starting pitching did or trade targets with, eight, with Oakland, just as an example. I think from a fan perspective, it's become a very tired act. And when you look at this Cardinals team, you know, the defense is always sound. The offense is improving. The relief pitching, I think, is pretty underrated. But it once again leaves open, you know, will the starting pitching be the kryptonite of this organization again? We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be a foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, Nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash theathletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. So, Lindsay, I guess the same question to you, but on a different scale. Uh, the Yankees did not sign Carlos Correa. They did not sign Corey Seager. They did not sign Marcus Simeon. They did not sign a lot of the big name targets. They had uh, Josh Donaldson, like we've mentioned. But we recorded a dry run of this podcast that will never see the light of day. And, and Andy and I talked with Mark Carrig about, like, the Yankees. We want the old Yankees who made just stupid moves. And you could just, like, count on them to get all the big names. And and after- <laughs> to be clear, Grant, you want the old Yankees. I just lo- I told you. I love the old Yankees. I told you. We have them. They're called the Mets. <laughs> but, like, I like okay. the idea. Anyway. I like the idea of, like, one team just, like, I want this guy. And, like, place him on the roster. Like, Carlos Correa. You know, like, it's, like, almost like this brainless, like, slime mold mentality of just like we're just gonna get the big guy but then after I thought about a little bit like the Yankees kind of have done that a little bit with Garrett Cole and Giancarlo Stanton like they've made yeah they've made some big moves and so you're hearing a lot of grumbling that the Yankees didn't get x y and z is that justified given where the sport is with the culture of competitiveness and the way that I see fans defend organizations that seem stuck in interminable rebuilds, I will never criticize Yankees fans for wanting too much from their team. Do I think it always makes sense? No, but these are people who were conditioned by George Steinbrenner. I think what gets overlooked is that the sport literally designed a system to stop George Steinbrenner and also that George Steinbrenner himself had to be stopped at some points. Um, You know, I mean, where would Bernie Williams have been if, you know, if, if cooler heads had not prevailed in the Yankees front office in the 90s? I think it's it's a tough thing to write about because I do think that, you know, something like the Josh Donaldson trade, where you get a good third baseman, a good hitting third baseman, you get Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, who fixes the shortstop problem as they had to move Gleyber Torres back. You get catcher depth, you move Gary Sanchez, you move Gio Urshela while he's still, you know, sort of in like a sell high position. So I think there is a lot of merit to that type of move being made. But I also understand why Yankees fans are like, the easy answer to the shortstop problem is to get Carlos Correa and all it costs is money. So I understand both sides of it. But I think the thing that I've seen over the last few years is that like fans are not always the greatest talent evaluators either. I think two moves that have been really instructive to me. I remember when they signed DJ LeMahieu in January 2019, and he was not Manny Machado. And it was like, who the hell is DJ LeMahieu? And by that point, he had already won like a batting title. It was like a three-time, it was like a two-time all-star or something. I don't know, whatever. You know, but it was such an underwhelming acquisition. And then they loved seeing the bat-to-ball skills in the lineup. And then there was such a demand to sign him to another big contract and then they did and then he had a down year last year while injured and it was like well why do we have this expensive long-term you know utility infielder and then I think about Joey Gallo where last year when the Yankees offense was really really struggling and they went out and they got Joey Gallo who was you know sort of the big name on the hitting market and I don't 
think Yankees fans really knew a lot about Joey Gallo. You know, they were sitting there frustrated with all of the swing and miss, the issues with, you know, basically hitting the Yankees offense last year before they before the trade deadline had a lot of good plate discipline and not a lot of hitting strikes for impact. And then Yankees fans were like, get Joey Gallo. And then they were like, why is this guy taking, you know, really good at bats, but not hitting strikes for impact? So it's a little bit difficult where I think there are a lot of factors, both the fact that, you know, George Steinbrenner basically designed this fan base to want more as they should, but the front office's aspirations to, quote, make smart moves and whatnot, which I also see as sort of a noble pursuit. So really, I guess where we fall is kind of just like, I don't know. Let's watch. Let's see if it works out. Like what happens with Josh Donaldson and then we'll go from there. Yeah. I feel like the Donaldson trade specifically, like the way that they, the way that like Brian Cashman sells that trade, right. Is like, and and you just sort of laid it out, Lindsay, of like how it improves the club. It's like, wow. Like what a great trade. Like what, that's incredible. Like what a really good trade they just made, but it takes a little bit of, uh, you kind of got to think it through. It's, it's, it takes, you know, it's, it's a little complicated and also like it requires several things to go right. Whereas no one's ever going to criticize the team for, you know, giving Anthony Rendon a preposterous contract. Now, like that deal is not working out at all. Uh, you know, just like most of the contracts that, you know, say the angels give out, uh, but that, you know, they only get criticized like four years down the line. Like, ugh. Can you believe like all this money they're going to pay Justin Upton? No one said that at the time. We've reached this place in analyzing baseball where the sort of bad faith actors among the ownership class have made it very difficult for writers, have created a sort of culture where it's very difficult for writers to sort of objectively analyze contracts because like if someone signs a huge deal and you're a writer and you write like that's an awful contract, why would that team do that? You know, you're going to be like, oh, you bootlicker, you're anti-labor, like, you know, that's ridiculous. Like, why don't you go read Moneyball again? And it's like, <laughs> you like Moneyball too. It's a good book. And so it's the sort of thing where, like, it's become a little more nuanced than this. But, like, I, I think I may have even written this a couple years ago. But, like, the most trenchant baseball analysis in, like, 2022 is the sort of stuff that would get you absolutely flamed on Fire Joe Morgan, you know, 15 years ago, where you'd be like, hey, that guy's good. Give him money. You should pay that guy. Pay that guy as much as you can to get that player. And everyone's like, yes, like this is like as good as it gets. Like this is top shelf analysis because the owners essentially like refuse to engage in competition in a variety of different ways. I don't know. I just... I think about this, I guess, with the Yankees specifically, because, like, they spend a ton every year. They are good every year, and it's kind of never enough. And some of that is partial to the market. Some of that is because they've made mistakes. Some of that is because they're an imperfect club, all that sort of thing. But, like, you know, Katie, I'm curious, like, have you spent much time thinking about, like, why do the Cardinals pretend they're a mid-market club? They are a major, like, they are a tentpole franchise of Major League Baseball. They're very competitive. Like, it's fine that they've chosen this business strategy. But, like, kind of how do they, for lack of a better term, like, get away with that? Given the revenues, the, you know, the reach they have, given the, the number of people come to the ballpark every year. How do they sort of spin that to the public? 
I actually think they haven't done a very good job. I mean, the, the argument, right, is that St. Louis is a small market in the grand scheme of things. Is St. Louis, Los Angeles, um, is St. Louis, New York, Philadelphia? No, but in a baseball market, in baseball terms, St. Louis is a mid-market. They're, you know, they're one of the top 10 teams in baseball almost every year. They are very competitive. They have high fan expectations because they have met those expectations nearly every year. I mean, these fans are a lot like Yankees fans, and they're conditioned to wanting the best roster every season. They want success. I really do think Cardinals fans were committed to going 162-0. and zero. They were shocked when the, when the team lost on Sunday. That's a product of what this organization has conditioned. So I, I don't blame fans at all for wanting more. I think when you are an organization like the Yankees or the Cardinals and you have such high expectations and stature in this sport, that comes with the territory. I think the Cardinals, and again, their conservative approach has been frustrating to the fan base because you look at their their ability to, to make big moves. You look at the Arenado trade, for example. That's a huge fleece. That's a team-changing fleece. I mean, Nolan Arnauto has like, built a statue in St. Louis already, right? And then you look at how they operate, and it can be frustrating from a fan perspective to see these. Again, I'm not calling them cheap because I don't think they operate cheaply. I think conservatively is, is a better word for it, but they're small incremental upgrades where they would rather kind of almost see what they have in-house, and sometimes when they act, it's a little too late. When you're looking at the moves they made during the trade deadline, are you really telling me that the Cardinals couldn't have swung a trade for, if these were the guys they were going for, John Lester and Jay Happ in June, when it was first clearly evident that they didn't have enough starting pitching? Was there really a need to wait until July 31st when the stakes are admittedly a lot higher during the trade deadline because teams now know that you're desperate? It's I think the way that they operate is a little bit confusing because they certainly have the potential to go bigger. In some cases, like for example, why they weren't so big on the shortstop market, why they didn't pursue Trevor Story or Correa or anything like that, that made sense. They'd already committed money to Paul DeYoung. They have a bunch of middle infielders coming up. They didn't want to part with any of their top prospects. That I can understand the argument. But when you're looking at glaring needs like starting pitching, perhaps, um, which seems to, again, be the biggest question mark about this club, it is a little perplexing both from a reporter standpoint and a fan standpoint on why they're not doing more when they are capable of doing so. Yeah, and like they might not have won the bidding for Max Scherzer, but like he went to the University of Missouri, you know, like he's willing to go play. I mean, I, you know, their spring training home is near uh, his place in Florida, which was apparently like his number one factor for where he wanted to play. So like you know, should have been in the running. I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting because like they're a behemoth. They are one of the titans of the sport, and they sort of, you know, act like, you know, getting to $175 million in payroll is like a huge ask, I guess. I don't know. It's interesting. So let me ask both of you, because, I, again, these two franchises, they seem to have so many different parallels. The fan bases for both seem conditioned to, to be like, okay, we're going to win 90 games. Uh, that is a given. Is it going to be 95 games? Is it going to be 85 games? Is it going to be 88? Is it going to be 92? Whatever. We know that it, it's going to be a winning season, a competitive season every single year. Do you think that either one of these franchises, the fan bases, would rather have like a Red Sox sort of existence where just you turn around and the team is just bananas bad. They just have injuries and they have the worst players. And you're looking at this going, what happened to the team that was in first place last year? This this team's going to be the worst team I've I've watched in decades. And then they turn around the next year and then it's a championship. And then they turn around the next year and it's like, oh, they're bad again. Like they have just the volatility of the Red Sox. 
Do you think that the Cardinals and Yankees fans would accept that kind of volatility if it came with the same kind of championships that the Red Sox have gotten over the last few years? I'm going to go with no. I mean, even when the Yankees did need to retool in 2016, Cashman did, I would say, a very hard U-turn. He didn't, you know, waste any time driving around the track. He um, he saw that they needed to make some changes, make some acquisitions, get some prospects, and then they went and did that. And so it was, you know, all things considered, like one of the most painless ways to end sort of the tapering out of the, you know, Derek Jeter era, but then they had all of these prospects to point to. They had, you know, the quote unquote baby bombers. They had Aaron Judge, they had Gleyber Torres, they had Gary Sanchez, they had at the time Clint Frazier, Greg Bird. You know, I, I think the thing about the Yankees is that they know that they can't have that type of, you know, Red Sox variance, or at least they don't really open the door for that for themselves. And and that's what fans expect. And, you know, when when you have an organization that really does look like it just prints its own money, why would fans ever accept that? I think there's also just like a lot we don't know because the Yankees were like kind of mediocre a few years ago, but they, they have not been Baltimore Orioles bad. They have not been a bad baseball team since the time when I was basically an infant. So we don't know. We don't know how fans would react, but also the way that fans as a whole view organizational culture and roster building has changed a lot. So I don't know if because, you know, the the tank and rebuild approach has sort of become normalized throughout the sport, if Yankees fans would accept it more, or if they look at, you know, a team like the Baltimore Orioles, which, my God, we've seen them up close so many times <laughs> over the last few years. I would frankly hope the Yankees fans would be scared off by something like that. But the bigger thing is that the Yankees are not in a position where they would need to do that. So, you know, it's sort of like my assumption would be no, but like given the history of the Yankees in my lifetime, which at this point would make up a significant chunk of the fan base, we also just don't have enough information for how they would treat something like that. You got to admit, if you could if you could game out like a different timeline where you can live different lives, one in which the Yankees spend like a 5-year hard tank like the Orioles would be tremendous content. That would be so funny. <laughs> I don't think you care about my health and safety, Andy, and I just don't really appreciate that, okay? Oh, well, no, like in this in this other timeline, you've found something productive to do with your life and you're, you know, oh, okay. you're not covering the Yankees anymore. To be clear, Grant is covering the Yankees uh, and he is forced to live in Bayonne, New Jersey. Am I a zookeeper or something fun in this sure. reality? Sure, whatever you like, yeah, whatever you want. Katie, what should your job be in this reality? Oh, my job? I would prefer to just maybe not be working at all. Just one of those people that just married into like, or was born into just wealth. And I don't even care about baseball. I don't care about anything because I'm living on my own island. Dream big, you guys. Yeah, I like that. That's like, I, I could be a dilettante. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that's a, that's a worthwhile goal. Okay, then I guess you guys should be running the Oakland A's, but okay. <laughs> I'll save it. This is a pro Oakland A's podcast. Yeah, I'm I'm a big Oakland A's guy, and, and Andy was making the argument for them. Uh, I, I I don't know. I like the A's. I think, but I do want someone to give me a few billion dollars so I could own the A's. I think I would be a very good owner. I think I would be a very hands-on owner. I would be obnoxious. Uh, people would have opinions about me, but I I think I'd make a good owner. You're describing George Steinbrenner. I was thinking just with the Red Sox thing, right? Like the Red Sox do have that boom and bust cycle, but like like outside of just like playing better in October, 
you know, like whether it's variance, whether it's, you know, whatever, like outside of just like winning the World Series, which requires skill, but no one exactly knows what those skills are. What are they doing? You know, like even specifically like the Yankees, like who, what is the big move that they're making that the Yankees aren't? The Yankees do big crazy things, you know, in the same way. They signed Garrett Cole to $300 million. You know, they pay Chapman, you know, the most, any closer. You know, they, they traded for Giancarlo Stanton, who had a contract that was, you know, allegedly untradeable. So much of, like, you know, as as any, uh, you know, executive will lament, so much of the narrative is based on just postseason variants, I guess, for, like, whether or not things are going well, which, like, yeah, that's kind of how it works. Like, but it, it, it is interesting when you try and think of the, the bigger picture and try and draw conclusions it's like i don't know like if they had just played a little bit better in the 2019 you know postseason they might have won the world series and none of this would be this would all be moot i guess i think like the question that i was starting like i was, I was thinking in my head when i was asking Lindsay and katie this is it was almost like i was trying to create a defense of the humble 90 win season and baseball seasons are so freaking long I think that there is something underrated about the Yankees guaranteeing like you will be interested for five months, maybe six months. And that is like such a huge guarantee. And I get that they haven't won the championship. You know, the Yankees since what, 08 uh, was the last, 09. And then, the you know, the Cardinals, uh, it's been a few years. But at the same time, like I'm just odd and it just so impressed by the ability to just say here you go fans you know that you're going to be interested in baseball all year and I think that that gets a little overlooked I would agree um I think what's really interesting about the Cardinals and and the 90 game 90 win season that you just mentioned Grant is like this is how the how John Mazalock the Cardinals president of baseball operations defines a successful season the bare minimum for Cardinals fans and for the organization to have a successful season is winning 90 games and I think that's something that Cardinals fans you know also have embodied I mean, if you ask Cardinals fans what's a good season it's not a wild card appearance it's not getting bounced out of the NLDS the overwhelming majority majority of Cardinals fans are happy with a deep NLCS run. 90 wins, I think that's what made the the controversy over the Cardinals season last year because they were very, very bad in June, July, and August. Even Adam Wainwright, who, like you said, Grant has been around since 1956, said when they clinched, you know, that was the worst Cardinals baseball I'd ever seen. And for such a staple to say that, you know, it made sense that fans were we're panicking. We're, we're so upset. We're so frustrated. So I think that there is a lot of value in winning 90 games. I think when you have an organization like the Cardinals or the Yankees that really value being competitive throughout the season, um, I think that pays dividends into how fans react. I don't think fans would appreciate brand of baseball. You know, the Red Sox equivalent would be the Cubs, where all of a sudden they're good and they get their one World Series and they kind of sell off again. I think what makes the Cardinals the Cardinals, what makes St. Louis St. Louis, is you know no matter what year it is, what part of the season this team is competing, this team is playing good baseball, and this team is worth watching. And I think that's the brand that both the Cardinals and the Yankees have embodied and what makes them two of the powerhouses in this industry. Grant, I find it interesting that you use the Red Sox as an example there when you wrote about every Giants game between 2009 and 2015, amongst many other years. But I mean, if, if we are talking about, you know, a yo-yo effect, I, I think no one has seen it more up close than you have. <laughs> I get yelled at for talking about the Giants too much. So I make a conscious effort on this mm-hmm. national show. I'm putting on my national hat. See, I'm wearing a Portland Pickles hat. Um, so that's how you know that I'm serious. I enjoy Grant being like, hey, who won the World Series in 2009? Oh, who was it in 2011? 
Oh, that's interesting. I seem to remember what happened in the year in between those, and then the year after. Yeah, and then a cut. But but yeah, I mean, 2015. I don't. Man, that was so long ago. I mean, who can? 2016. You know, may, like there was a good wild card game. I remember, but I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it is my brand. It is my brand. Um, I will say that. Uh, one thing that we do on this podcast is uh, when I pretend to know national baseball, I realize that I haven't said uh, a name out loud or that I come to a name and I realize I'm about to go like, so one more time, Katie, can you just pronounce the name of the Cardinals GM? Because it blew my mind. John Moselock there. He is their president of baseball operations. Um, he is most commonly referred to as Mo. Because it, it threw me for a loop the first time I, I took this job and I saw the um, his name on the press release. I was like, um, what? So I was I was blown away with happiness when they were like, oh, yeah, just call him Mo. I knew who he was. Like, I, I was very well aware of who was running the Cardinals. But when you said that name, I like cold shock ran over me because I was like, if I had to say that name, I would have, you know, just ruined my reputation. Good thing uh, I didn't admit it here on this podcast. All right, we're going to wrap up. I wanted to thank uh, Lindsay Adler and Katie Wu for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I wish you interesting times and another 90 win plus season to cover this year because bad baseball is really hard to write about. So I think you guys are both in good spots. There's always that. That is fair. All right, this has been episode two of The Roundtable. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week, and we'll talk about, I don't know, baseball or something. All right, thanks for listening. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.